Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. We know that climate change is endangering our planet. What might not be so obvious is that it's also endangering our health. Heat waves, air pollution, infectious diseases, and our health depends on adequate food and water supplies. Climate change threatens each of these areas, and that's why it's a big issue. Warmer temperatures have given rise to mosquito populations, bringing diseases like Zika and dengue fever out of the tropics. For North Americans, we really don't let it sink in how the world is changing. There are no borders or walls that can protect us from mosquito-borne illness and this type of disease. The Hidden Health Hazards of Climate Change, up next on Climate One. As climate change threatens our planet, it's also endangering our health. How can we protect ourselves? Welcome to Climate One, hosted by Greg Dalton. Climate change isn't just an environmental problem. It's also a health hazard. Air pollution and changing weather patterns give rise to heat-related illnesses, asthma, and allergic disorders. Disasters like Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Irma leave hospitals scrambling to save patients without power and resources. According to the Centers for Disease Control, insect-borne diseases have tripled in the United States in recent years, and warmer weather is largely to blame. Later in the program, we'll hear how hospitals and the healthcare industry are dealing with these climate-related challenges. And we'll hear from a triathlete who survived a case of West Nile virus but isn't convinced about climate change. But first, Jonathan Patz is director of the Global Health Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He spoke with Greg Dalton about why he believes climate change is the major health crisis of our time. So when people think about climate change, they often think of polar bears, smokestacks, tailpipes. How is climate a personal and public health concern? Well, you know, there, there are many health issues that are sensitive to climate, anything from heat waves to uh, ground-level ozone to mosquito-borne diseases. And there are so many ways that climate change can affect our health through these direct uh, temperature or precipitation events to indirect events uh, events that uh, it's it's a big problem. I think if I went through the full list of exposures, uh, it's one of the reasons that I've picked it as one of the most important public health challenges of our times because, you know, Heat waves, air pollution, infectious diseases, especially uh, vector-borne and waterborne diseases, and our health depends on adequate food and water supplies. Climate change threatens uh, each of these areas, and that's why it's a big issue. What's the biggest health impact today that Americans are feeling? And I know it's often difficult to attribute a particular disease or weather event all to climate. Climate is an amplifier, but what is the biggest health effect today in the United States from climate change? Well, in the United States, uh, even in our single country, it depends where you live, what the main threat would be. So people that live in the Midwest, certainly heat waves are a, a huge issue. Uh, but if you live in a coastal area, like in Louisiana, the combination of sea level rise and stronger storm surges from stronger hurricanes 
uh, those would be the, the risks. So there's a regional texture to the risks. It's hard to, to pick out one, uh, one risk as being the number one risk for the United States. But uh, aspects of heat waves and also air pollution, um, uh, air pollution still kills, uh, you know, you know a pol- uh, particulate air pollution kills more than 60,000 Americans every year. So um, that that's a big topic. Uh, and then if you live in a place that has uh, vulnerability to mosquito-borne diseases like uh, dengue fever or Zika virus uh, in the uh, in the southern United States, uh, these are climate-sensitive diseases, and there is a risk uh, of, of those diseases in, in those localities. Who's doing a good job getting prepared for these things? Is it, is it uh, cities and states on the front lines in the southern United States? You know, who's really out front connecting uh, climate risk and public health? Well, the, the CDC actually has a program. It's called the BRACE program, which stands for Building Resilience Against Climate Effects. So there are several um, states now that have funding from the CDC for climate change adaptation and building resilience. Uh, so there, there's that, that program. Um, cities on their own are doing a great job as far as climate change mitigation. And even though things are stalling out at the federal level, uh, cities are moving forward very much so as far as both climate adaptation, but especially uh, climate change mitigation, which which means burning less fossil fuel, having uh, smart transportation and urban design and trying to get off of coal-fired power plants. Um, that's, that's something that's, uh, you know, moving forward. And I'll say that uh, the market is, is automatically uh, beginning to push uh, dirty energy out. Uh, I think that if you talk to an investor that just wants to make money and may, may not really care about environmental concerns, people are not investing in, in dirty coal anymore. Uh, so that's sort of automatically happening, and that's a good thing that that's happening. Another powerful uh, constituency we often hear about in climate conversations are insurance companies. They were among the first to come forward with very sophisticated data about property losses from rising seas, from severe weather, amplified by climate change. Are Where are the health insurers? You mentioned healthcare, health in uh, the United States. A lot of people immediately think about their insurance. Are they uh, have a voice in this conversation, the health insurers? Uh, that's a great question. I know that the healthcare sector is is getting involved with uh, green hospitals and healthcare without harm. Uh, Kaiser Permanente is taking a leadership role uh, in this. So there's a lot of um, attention to not continuing to fuel the problem by having uh, inefficient buildings, and there, so there is this green hospitals movement. Uh, I don't really know about uh, the health insurance. I think uh, when you think about the enormous number of health uh, health effects and risks from climate change, but also the incredible number of health benefits from climate change policy, uh, I think it's uh, it'd be a great idea for the health insurance company to companies to come on board with this. Mental health doesn't get a lot of attention, but you think about uh, the dramatic increase in severe weather events, people losing their homes, uh, whether it's wildfires in Northern California, Superstorm Sandy's some years ago, whether it's Hurricane Harvey or Irma or Maria. There's a lot of people who are still suffering trauma long after the news has has moved on. Um, What can you say about the mental health aspect of the volatile climate and its impacts it's having on the United States? Yeah, the mental health issue, it's, a, it's an important issue. It's one that's been uh, overlooked a little bit too much because it's, it's certainly um, large and concerning, anything from post-traumatic stress syndrome, following storms and disasters, uh, to simple um, uh, stress and concern from, you know, the prospects for the future. I think... Uh, there are a few few studies coming out on this. There are also some interesting studies on on green space uh, in cities that, where you can see green space is not only 
a good thing to reduce the urban heat island effect, you know, the, the um, intensifying of a heat wave from black asphalt roads and concrete buildings to um, mitigating that through uh, green space that, that reduces the urban uh, heat, heat island effect. But green space has been shown to be extremely important as far as reducing stress and for benefiting uh, mental health. So there's some intersections there between interventions for ad- adapting to climate change and uh, reducing um, you know, mental health uh, problems. But yeah, definitely a, a big topic there. What can an individual do to th- think about health care as a climate issue? Well, the first thing is, of course, to to be aware that climate change truly is a public health issue, something that affects our own health, and it's not uh, simply something that affects the polar bears and biodiversity and very important environmental effects. Uh, these are important, but I think too often people overlook the fact that, indeed, there are so many pathways through which climate can affect our health. Uh, as we mentioned, the heat waves air quality, and there are studies that show that ragweed pollen increases with warmer temperature and and CO2. So you're saying that people's allergies could get worse with climate change. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes. There's a study uh, from the National Academy of Sciences, uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, that shows that ragweed pollen season is increasing across the United States, especially in uh, northern latitudes. And that's in relation to warmer temperatures and higher CO2 levels. So that's, that's a, a high concern, especially for children with asthma. But across the, the globe, uh, concerns about malnutrition. And uh, there's some studies showing that by mid-century, because of uh, extreme temperatures, um, we could see a doubling in the number of people at risk for um, malnutrition going from uh, 900 million to uh, doubling that. So that's quite significant, a major concern. So that these are um, a very diverse um, way that uh, climate affects our health. But at the same time, when you think, what is causing climate change? It's burning fossil fuels. And the, the measures we would take to combat climate change by getting off of fossil fuel, in fact, in themselves will have immediate public health benefits. And I I personally think this is the health opportunity of the century when you think about the increased trends in chronic disease, uh, especially those related to um, um, physical inactivity, poor diet, um, you know, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and even cancer. If we get, you think about how we are dependent on the automobile, and we, many of us have sedentary lifestyles. In fact, 60% of Americans don't even meet the minimum recommended level of exercise. And, you know, obesity rates hit 40% in adults and 18% in children just last year. Well, almost half of car trips are really short trips, less than two miles. And um, if we've actually done studies ourselves to show that if you could take um, those short car trips off the road and turn half of them into active transport by bicycle, um, you could save lives. In our region, we'd save 1,300 lives every year and $8 billion every year in avoided mortality and health costs. Those are not trivial numbers. These are, you know, if we can build cities for people rather than for just automobiles, um, it's a golden opportunity to mitigate climate change from burning less fossil fuel and at the same time uh, improving our health in a major way. And there are plenty of studies looking at electric power and coal-fired power plants uh, you know, to get to cleaner energy. If we, A recent study showed that if we... Uh, replace coal-fired power plants with solar electricity to generate uh, power in the United States. That would save over 50,000 lives a year. I think a lot of people know those things, and they know that, oh, yeah, but, I mean, whether I think a bike ride in in winter in Madison, Wisconsin uh, might be a tough sell. But people know that, yeah, they should walk more, they should exercise more. 
but we don't do it. Well, this is where um, I think it's extremely important to understand that the healthy choice has to be the convenient choice. You know, it's not a matter – people don't do what they should do. Um, I don't ride my bike to the university uh, because it's environmentally responsible and it helps my health. I ride my bike because it's the fastest way to get from my house to my office. And that's where uh, urban planners need to come in, and and we need to be thinking very um, strategically to design healthy cities. It's got to be health by design, not by shaming. So what's some of the biggest surprises that you've come across recently that you, you've studied this for a long time, climate and health connection? What's something that's really surprised you? Well, one thing, um, I was the uh, co-chair for the, the health report of the first um, congressionally mandated U.S. National Assessment Report. This is back in in nineteen nine in uh, two thousand, and um, I remember at that time, and it still holds today, that one of the biggest surprises was the safety of our drinking water. And when you think about climate change, it's not just about temperature; it's extremes of the water cycle, more floods and more droughts, and our water systems today already are contaminated by heavy rainfall events. They're called combined sewage overflow events. And already in the United States, more than a trillion gallons of sewage-contaminated stormwater overflows into our lakes and streams every year. So that's a challenge as far as heavy rainfall. Well, the, the forecast for climate change is we are going to see heavier rainfall events. We're going to see more droughts, but when it rains, it's going to pour because hot air holds more moisture. So this is, I think, uh, of, of concern, and it was a surprise when I first looked at it, and it continues to be a surprise how vulnerable our, our water systems are when you think about extremes and climate variability. Then how do you talk about all this without sending people reaching for their Prozac? <laughs> well, you know, that's where I say, especially in light of the trends in chronic diseases, which are ramping up all over the world, that it is a golden opportunity uh, to get to a low-carbon economy that from automobiles to, to dirty coal-fired power plants that you know, here's an opportunity to have clean energy and clean air and build cities that will allow for safe biking and walking and effective transit rather than uh, promoting sedentary lifestyles through motorized vehicles, that it's a golden opportunity, fantastic opportunity, and a large one uh, considering the, the size of these epidemics and chronic diseases. So I, I tell people that you know, even even if you didn't believe in climate change, that to get to low carbon is an amazing health opportunity, and it's something that um, you know you can you can talk to anybody. Nobody's going to uh, be against safe routes to schools or physically fit children and adults. You know, no one will be against that. Uh, I think it's something that we really have a great opportunity here. Uh, and we should seize that opportunity. You know what they say, you know, every crisis is an opportunity. And I think I think the global climate crisis is a huge opportunity for public health. That was Jonathan Patz, director of the Global Health Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the health hazards of climate change. Coming up, more about mosquitoes and how a victim of West Nile virus views climate change. You probably don't want to hear anything I have to say about change of climate. <laughs> sure I do. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for the Climate One podcast comes in part from Villanova University. Passionate about sustainability? Villanova University offers graduate degrees in sustainable engineering. The master's and the Ph.D. can be completed as a full-time or part-time student, online or on campus, and are available for engineers and non-engineers alike. 
Villanova's interdisciplinary program explores the full environmental, social, and economic aspects of sustainable engineering. VUSustainableEngineering.com A wake-up call to the world. One could kill you. Millions are out there. Mosquito. The 2017 Discovery Channel documentary, Mosquito, traces the path of these disease-bearing insects around the globe. Sue Reinert is the film's director. She joined Greg Dalton to talk about how warming weather is helping mosquitoes live longer, travel farther, and infect more people than ever before. One of the most memorable uh, scenes in the film, in the program, was when you go to Miami and, and talk with Lindsay, um, who was a pregnant mom, and her husband, who is quite upset about how they're living in Miami for fear of getting uh, Zika. Tell us about that scene. Well, we had uh, filmed in Recife, Brazil, and we, we were right in the middle of the Zika epidemic. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Mosquito is that we always think that um, these are problems that happen elsewhere. So Zika certainly was coming to us through the news and stuff, but I think for North Americans, we really don't let it sink in how the world is changing and how there is no, uh, there, like there are no borders or walls that can protect us from from mosquito-borne illness and these, this type of disease. So certainly in a climate like Florida, where they have enormous mosquito populations, huge mosquito populations year-round. They've got water year-round. It is a tropical climate. Uh, there's no reason why those diseases can't get to these communities. So we were filming right at the time when Zika cases had been found in Miami, uh, specifically in the Wynwood neighborhood. Um, which Lindsay and Scott Furman live very close to. So we were looking for different people to, to film with that would talk to us about their experience. And specifically, the, the people who are most vulnerable are the pregnant mothers because of the, the uh, threat of microcephaly from Zika um, as a result of the Zika virus. And it was just really interesting to talk to them because I think they were very candid in in their emotional uh, response, which was largely to the government, which had kind of failed to provide the funding to support the CDC, to support extra initiatives, to educate the public. Again, kind of squabbling over um, the issue rather and leaving the people vulnerable and leaving them exposed to the problem. And Scott chokes up at one point and he says, look, I'm a father. It's my duty to protect my child and wife. And he feels very vulnerable that that this tiny little mosquito uh, can threaten his his unborn baby, and I think that was one of the most uh, compelling moments of the program. Yes, yes, yeah, no, they they were amazing to meet, and I, you know, one thing that's great about documentary and filming documentary is you you kind of people let you into their lives, and even though your contact with them is for a short period of time, it can be incredibly intense, and we certainly arrived on their doorstep at a very intense moment. And I appreciate their openness to talk about the issue. So the Congress, U.S. Congress passed a one point billion dollar uh, package to do research into Zika to perhaps find a vaccine. What's the status of that? Uh, I believe there is research for the vaccine, which is, I mean, maybe it's possible to find a vaccine for Zika. I'm not an expert on vaccines. I know that they've been searching for a malaria vaccine for about 15 years, <laughs> um, although there is a yellow fever vaccine. So some some viruses they are able to find vaccines for. Um, but vaccines are only one solution amongst what you need, a, you know, you need a multi-pronged approach, you know, to prevent all of these. And, and, uh, that even goes back to the subject of your show, which is the climate. I mean, climate change is one of the reasons why these mosquito-borne diseases are on the rise. And what's the scope? I mean, people think of, uh, as Bill Gates says in the program, people think of these diseases as sort of, um, he doesn't use this term, but third world problems, you know, Africa, Latin America. So how is climate bringing uh, Zika to the U.S. and how far can it get? Can it get up to Canada? Yeah, that that really depends. I mean, 
well, we can talk about Zika, but we can also broaden it to talk about some other mosquito-borne uh, viruses. So, uh, for example, to start, there's some um, invasive species in the States now, which has been in there since the 80s, called the Asian tiger. And that is a carrier of uh, dengue fever, which is a hugely, uh, you know, a disease that's on the rise, chikungunya, and it can also transmit Zika. So that mosquito started when it first came to the States. It was found in Memphis and in the warmer places, and it's slowly been adapting to the climate and moving north. So part of that is the warmer winters, prolonged warmer temperatures, you know, such as the winter we just enjoyed, make it possible for the mosquito eggs to survive the winter. Um, so in our film, we filmed with Dr. Laura Harrington, who was really chasing the kind of northern habitat reach of these mosquitoes, which at the time of filming was Long Island, and since they've even spread into Ontario. So that doesn't mean the disease is there, but it means if you have an insect that's a vector that's capable of spreading that disease, all you need is one person to travel to that area that's infected. You just need to add the infection if the mosquito population is present. So that's a new danger, and it's this, this Asian tiger is all over uh, the United States now, including California. Um, so that's a real problem. It's these invasive mosquitoes, and that's just one part of it. There's more. <laughs> And is Canada getting ready for the march of the uh, dangerous mosquitoes into a place where people rarely associate mosquitoes with a country so far north as Canada? Well, I think we've definitely got the Asian tiger, you know, has come is into southern Ontario already. So that's we're going to have to monitor that. Um, and that's the invasive species that carries, you know, the, the diseases I just mentioned. We also have West Nile, which with weather patterns such as we've been having uh, this spring, which is very, very wet. Um, and again, climate change isn't just, you know, hotter, it's it's changing weather patterns and increased, for example, increased periods of rainfall. So that has certainly increased our mosquito populations enormously this year. So we do have West Nile uh, circulating in uh, where I live in the Toronto area around this year. So that's, um, that's a concern. So yeah, I mean, places that weren't touched before certainly are being touched. When you were in Miami, Lindsay and Scott talked about uh, not going outside without putting on an armor of bug spray. Uh, when you do that, do you use the DEET uh, bug spray or the non-DEET bug spray? Something that people who go to the outdoor store often um, ponder whether to go with uh, the strong toxic stuff or the other stuff. Well, I think if you really don't want to get bitten, you have to go with the strong toxic stuff. There's um, a website, uh, the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. The U.S. website lists what ingredients are actually effective. And this is a, a kind of consumer beware situation because there's so many products marketed out there, and most of them don't work at all. But DEET works, um, Picardian, another uh, ingredient works and there's an oil of lemon eucalyptus I think that works but um, I would again recommend that people check the website if they're really looking and also the thing about insect repellent is Scott and Lindsay are absolutely right when there isn't a virus circulating which there was at that time in their neighborhood they have to protect themselves they have to put that on every single day you know thoroughly and properly so they don't get bitten I don't think Everywhere we have to run out and buy bug spray because if the disease isn't present in the mosquito population, you don't have to, um, a mosquito bite won't hurt you. You know, you won't get a disease. So that's the, the other part of it. There's some pretty strong statements in the program about wars are nothing compared to mosquitoes and the most mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal in the world. I had thought that malaria was on the, the downslope thanks to Bill Gates and others. Is that not the case? Yeah, malaria is currently on the down. I mean, there's still hundreds of thousands of people who die every year from it and millions who are affected. But malaria is only one disease. The Zika outbreak is is a kind of warning sign. I mean, I think that was a wake-up call, especially to North America, that these things are, are present. Um, there's certainly, in Europe, things are changing. Everywhere, things are changing. So I think that just because you, you've had some success reducing one, I mean, major disease, I mean, this has taken years and years of work, there are others that are on the rise. You know, 300 million people a year get dengue fever and chikungunya. These are things that are 
coming and they're spreading. And yes, they all sound crazy and foreign and stuff, but we better get used to saying them because they this is the changing landscape. And this, again, brings me back to climate. I mean, climate isn't an image of a polar bear on an ice floe. Climate is increases in disease, like a warmer world, uh, you know, is... It's more hospitable to disease. Yeah, sicker world. Yeah. yeah, a warmer world is a sicker world. And, um, I mean, another thing that happens with mosquitoes is they respond to heat. They're very temperature sensitive. So um, the life cycle, if we have prolonged heat, uh, the life cycle of a mosquito will actually speed up. So if you have more mosquitoes, there's more possibility of spreading disease. And the other part of that is that the virus or the parasite, the life cycle of that, also speeds up. So you have increased mosquitoes and increase in the parasites and the diseases that they, they carry and spread. So that's, that's a real danger. And if you're in a drought, you know, like, like California has been for the last, not last year, but prior to that, you might think you're safe. But I mean, mosquito eggs can live for years, like 10 years, you know. So if you have a rainfall that happened 10 years ago and the eggs were laid and you have a drought and then you have a big rainfall again with these irregular weather patterns, all those eggs that are dormant are going to come to life. So you'll have this intense, intense outbreak of mosquitoes. So all of the things that are happening now with the planet are going to change everything with mosquitoes and mosquito-borne illnesses. And, and you know, for the mosquito... There are uh, many mosquitoes that don't spread diseases, that are part of the biomass, that are really an important part of our healthy functioning ecosystem. And then there's the vector diseases. So I think this is something that we all, the vector mosquitoes that are vectors of disease, we have to start to learn the differences and learn awareness. And it just has to be another thing that we're thinking about because like the world has changed and like human impacts have changed the world and they've changed it for the betterment of the mosquito. That was Sue Reinard, director of the 2017 documentary Mosquito. In 2012, after an unusually warm and wet season, Texas experienced a West Nile virus epidemic. Over 1,800 people contracted the disease, 89 of them died. One person who survived a run-in with West Nile was triathlete Chuck Yarling. Yarling began training for triathlons in 1983 at the suggestion of his friend Richard Blakely. A few months later, at the age of 38, he entered his first competition. In 2012, while training in Austin, he suddenly fell ill. Recently, um, you contracted West Nile virus. How did that happen? Well, I got bit by mosquito sometime. I was training to do my next race. And Richard says that I felt weak and I stopped training and to recover and I started training again. He seemed to think I was already bitten. All of a sudden, I didn't feel too good on Tuesday. Went to the uh, clinic and they said, oh, you're fine. Take some aspirin. You'll be there. So on Wednesday, I got up and I said, I do not feel good at all. Going to go back to bed. I didn't make it. Fell into a coma on Wednesday morning around 10 a.m. Thursday, Richard came to look for me because I didn't show up to happy hour, which I never missed, <laughs> at our favorite restaurant. So uh, he found me, and I was 31 hours later, he got me in the hospital. So you were in a coma yeah. for how long alone? 31, 31 hours. 31 hours at your, your home there in Austin. Wow. What was the weather like that in Austin that year? You know, Austin's been that Texas. Was, that was middle. That was uh, third week of August, so it, it's it got pretty warm, and I never worried about getting out in the sun and the, or the heat to train, run or bike. Nope, didn't matter to me. And then what happened? Well, about twelve days later, I woke up, and my mm. first thought was, uh, "Wait a minute, when am I going to train again?" I didn't realize what was going on yet, and I looked around. There was my sister couple of her kids and a tube down my throat. So that was in the rehab for about 30 days. And then Richard took me to his house in Buda. I called it my halfway house. In a wheelchair, learning how to fix myself and work around the house. Okay. And did they at this point know that it was West Nile? Did you get an accurate diagnosis? The doctors knew exactly what it was, but they had to take a spinal tap to prove it. And is that something oh, yeah. that's uh, 
common in, in Austin, West Nile virus, or is that unusual? How common is that? That's a good question. Uh, it started off being really bad in Dallas uh, prior to August, but in August 2012, it got really bad there, and I hit Austin, too. Yeah, five people in the, went in the hospital the same week as me, three died. Were you aware of West Nile virus uh, in an outdoor triathlete in Austin uh, at that time? Was that something that was on your radar? Nah, I don't think about things like that. When did you think about contracting West Nile in Austin, Texas, as possibly connected to the changing climate? You probably don't want to hear anything I have to say about change of climate. <laughs> sure I do. If there is such a thing as change of climate, mankind has nothing to do with it. Okay. And, and you were an engineer in the Army, is that right? Uh, well, I was a combat engineer, but I was basically a clerk typist and a words clerk in Vietnam. Okay. When I came back from Vietnam, I got finished my engineering degree. So you've worked, worked in manufacturing and have a scientific background, and yeah. you're not sure the climate is changing. That's correct. And so when you look around and you look at, say, what happened to Houston, three 500-year floods in a row, something like that, you say that's, what do you, what do you say to that? The people who in Texas who say, wow, these, these floods and rain bombs are coming pretty strong. This is something new and different. That doesn't mean it's going to happen any time in the next 25 years either, does it? No, there's probability. So you're not convinced the climate is changing. So you're not convinced that warming temperatures is increasing uh, hospitality for, for mosquitoes carrying Zika, West Nile, and other diseases? No, I don't. You, um, I can draw an argument saying, okay, supposedly observations have been made that the Arctic area region has a uh, melting ice caps, whatever. Huh. But that cannot explain why the ice is growing in the Antarctic, because that doesn't make sense to me. Right. Well, there's the extent of, there's something that calls the extent of sea ice, which is the spread of the sea ice, the sort of area. And then there's how thick and how heavy that ice is. So uh, it's possible that you could crush up a bunch of ice and put it in a tub and it would spread out. Uh, it would look over a, a broader surface area. Um, but it's been getting thicker in the Antarctic. Yeah, in some places it's getting colder, but overall global temperatures are rising. Uh, it still gets really cold some places, and there's still low records in some places, but there's a lot more warm records than there are cold records. I'm not, I'm not disregarding climate change per se. My argument specifically is mankind has nothing to do with it. It cannot have anything to do with it. My argument is this. Mankind lives on only 31% of the planet. And it is obscene for anybody to consider that mankind on 31% can affect weather on the remaining parts of the earth, which are all water. Triathlete Chuck Yarlin survived a battle with West Nile virus after being bitten by a mosquito in 2012. Yarling eventually began training again. He just turned 73 and is preparing for his next race. This is Climate One. You're listening to a conversation about climate change and health. Coming up, we'll hear how the healthcare industry is dealing with the new normal. Clearly, hospitals care, and they need to care because their operations, you know, business as usual, do harm. And healthcare has a responsibility not to do harm. You're listening to Climate One. We've been hearing about the health care hazards of climate change. What are hospitals doing to address the challenges of disease outbreaks, weather disasters, and their own carbon footprint? To find out, Greg Dalton spoke with Jessica Wolf, director of the Climate and Health Program at Healthcare Without Harm. So what is a climate-smart healthcare system? Well, it's interesting. People don't think about healthcare when they think about climate. But healthcare makes up 18% of our GDP. And there was a study done in 2016 by Dr. Jody Sherman and Matthew Eckelman, which showed that healthcare actually makes up about 10% of our greenhouse gas emissions in this country. 
So what that means is that the U.S. healthcare sector, if it were a country, it would rank ahead of the U.K. and would be the 13th leading country for greenhouse gas emissions. So with that, we know that climate change has health impacts, which um, a number of your other um, guests have been talking about. And um, because hospitals operate in such an energy-intensive and use so many products and create so much waste, their contributions to climate change actually end up adversely impacting health. And so this is a sector, it's the only industry that is has a mission to heal and has pledged to do no harm. So this is a sector mm -hmm. that has an opportunity and a responsibility to use its ethical, economic, and political influence to advance the transition to a low-carbon future that supports healthy people living on a healthy planet. And to do that, that's where Climate Smart Healthcare comes in, and that is about mitigation, so healthcare reducing its own carbon footprint, resilience, so healthcare working to build resilient healthcare facilities and help build resilient communities and leadership, you know, using that trusted voice to influence policymakers, shift the public discussion to make climate change about health, not about polar bears, because that's what resonates. And then also to bring their market muscle to help move those markets and really, um, you know, lead to some disruptions. What did this awareness uh, come about? I mean, if I think back about when I first kind of connected climate change with healthcare, it was the evacuation of a hospital in New York City during Superstorm Sandy, where the power is out and the streets are flooded. And literally, it's like, you know, patients climbing downstairs because the elevators don't work. And there was that very dramatic evacuation of, the, I think it was the NYU hospital in lower Manhattan. Was it that moment? Or what, what, what was the awakening moment for the healthcare industry to say, hey, we got to be part of this? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, that was NYU Langone, and um, NYU Langone did have a seawall to protect its generator. But because of climate change, you know, our projections for flooding and sea level height are off. So, you know, they did lose power. They did have to evacuate. They had $700 million in research losses alone at NYU. So mm. in terms of building for climate resilience, that really was a wake-up call. And we have health systems across the country that are investing in being prepared. I mean, uh, Texas Medical Center uh, for Hurricane Allison in 2001, they were manually ventilating patients. They invested in resilience and being prepared. And with Hurricane Harvey in 2017, all 23 of their hospitals remained operational. So we're seeing real benefits. Um, so hospitals that have been hit by extreme weather or hospitals like Partners Healthcare in Boston, Massachusetts, they've built the Spalding Rehab Center, which is a glowing example of how to build for resilience considering sea level rise. And that, that hospital is a rehab hospital right on Boston Harbor. It was the hospital that where the Boston Marathon bombing patients underwent rehabilitation. So I think healthcare that that's extreme weather events is one piece, but healthcare is on the front lines not just for extreme weather events. As disease prevalence shifts, um, that's also something healthcare will have to have to manage and have to deal with. And you know, it's not enough for hospitals to stay open during extreme weather events. Patients have to be able to get there. Their staff has to be able to get there. So hospitals not only need to think about their own climate resilience, they need to think about their communities. And doctors are often leaders or respected members of communities. Uh, there's been some professional advocacy. The American Academy of Pediatrics has come out a few years ago and said that climate is a primary concern for children and children's health care, American Medical Association. So how are the, the healthcare professionals kind of using their respect and muscle to bring attention to climate? Yes, um, you make a good point. Many of the... Um medical societies have come out with statements supporting climate change. Um, there's a newer organization called the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, where these societies have come together and have started to do strong advocacy work through that organization. Um, we have at Healthcare Without Harm a physician network, a way for physicians to connect and network and um, 
access tools, resources, best practices, so they can bring them back to their hospitals. Um, we don't see enough of climate change um, information in medical schools and residency programs. The physicians who are leaders in this work are going. You know, we um, work closely with Dr. Amy Collins, who's an emergency medicine physician in Massachusetts, and she recently spoke to medical students at Mount Sinai in New York. We hosted an event with U.S. Perg uh, in Chicago that was, you know, directed at medical students and residents. Um, and recently there was a fellowship created in climate and health science policy at CU Boulder, and that's in the, again, in the Department of Emergency Medicine. So when you look at clinicians, interestingly, or physicians, emergency medicine physicians, they get this because they're on the front lines of this. Um, the other group of physicians that's very active um, are anesthesiologists because something that's unique to healthcare is that 5% of the emissions from hospitals are typically related to anesthetic gas emissions. So that's a group that is working you know, to, to try to reduce those emissions. And there are some solution, you know, some solutions and some are, are relatively easy to implement. Reading your report about a climate smart healthcare system, was the pharmaceutical impact? What is the carbon impact of uh, the pills that are administered or prescribed in hospitals? Yeah, in the um, 2016 report um, by Sherman and Eckelman, they estimate th that pharmaceuticals are 10% of the greenhouse gas emissions from healthcare. So, you know, those pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. are manufactured and then they're transported um, and then they get to the hospital and then they have to, you know, um, then there's the waste coming out the other side. So from the hospital perspective, you want to be pretty careful with inventory because when you have more than you need, then you have to dispose of those. And those are, you know, create more impact in terms of waste and greenhouse gas emissions as well. We're talking about hospitals with Jessica Wolf from Healthcare Without Harm because hospitals are the big source of emissions. Uh, running a hospital is complicated. There's a lot of pressures on costs, insurance. You know, healthcare is a big uh obviously controversial and industry in uh, undergoing a lot of change. Is being green really a priority when you're trying to save lives and trying to take care of these people, not sure if they can pay their bills? Is like recycling and taking care of the waste, is that really a priority? Well, it's a good question. You know, um, we have my sister organization, which is our implementation arm, is called Practice Green Health. And we have 1,200 hospitals that are members of Practice Green Health, which is really a sustainability healthcare organization. And that's about 20% of the hospitals in this country. So clearly hospitals care, and they need to care because their operations, you know, business as usual operations, do harm. And Healthcare mm -hmm. has a responsibility not to do harm. Now, when you look at margins, hospitals have very low margins. You know, there's mm -hmm. many of your guests are from corporate America. Hospitals, if they're lucky, have a two to four percent margin. Often, they're losing money. So you're right; it's hard, and and we're competing for dollars. So when you're trying to do an energy efficiency upgrade, you're competing for capital potentially with a new MRI or a new fancy surgical robot. So how do you make that case? Well, the reality is when you have a low margin, every dollar you save from energy efficiency saves you much more in revenue. So, you know, if you have a 4% margin, if you save a dollar, it's equivalent to $25 in new revenue coming in. So that's one of the arguments or, you know, rationale we need to make, particularly when you're talking to people who are under pressure for the margins, like a CFO or a COO of a hospital. Sure. And, and when uh, we know that hospitals, anyone who's ever visited or stayed in a hospital know that the food's usually pretty bad. They're trying to make you healthy, but they're not serving you the most healthy food. Uh, probably they want to keep that food cost low. We know that food is a big contributor to uh, greenhouse gases, food waste, a really big contributor. So is healthier food and food waste part of what the hospitals are trying to do? Absolutely. And actually, one of our most robust programs at Healthcare Without Harm is called our Healthy Food and Healthcare Program. And that's looking at nutrition, not just through the lens of what do you need to be heart healthy, what are the vitamins and minerals, but how is the food produced, how is it processed, how is it packaged, how is it distributed, as well as how mm -hmm. it was consumed. And many of our hospitals are making big strides to purchase local food. So we have a hospital, University of Vermont Medical Center, 
and they're procuring over 45% of their food locally. And, you know, they have a rooftop garden. They take their food waste to be composted off-site, and then they buy some of that compost back for their gardens. Um, Boston Medical Center has a rooftop garden, and that food goes right to their fresh food pharmacy. So physicians mm. write prescriptions for low-income patients to be able to get fresh produce, and some of that is grown on site. So there's a mm. lot of innovative solutions. Hospitals are often the largest employer in a community, and they procure and serve a lot of food. They're feeding their patients, their staff, and their visitors, so they can make a real difference there. So what can a patient do, uh, you know, shopping for a doctor or considering a hospital, you know, whether the hospital's green, probably not on the top of your uh, priority list when you're looking for someone to, to uh, take care of you. But what can a patient do to be sensitive to these kinds of changes in the healthcare sector? That's a very good question. And I think all of us, when you are sick or you have a family member that's sick, you're not worrying if your hospital is powered by renewable energy. You're worried mm -hmm. that they're going to take the best care of your mother, that the surgeon that they're seeing has done that procedure a thousand times, that you understand what they're saying, that they're not going to have complications. So I don't think it's fair to ask patients to drive this transition. And I will also say you don't often have a choice where you go. You know, hospitals have been consolidating. Often there's only one hospital in a region. Um, so for most people, they don't always have a choice about a hospital that they go to. But I think when you're not ill, to be aware of what hospitals are doing and push on them as a member of the community, because what a hospital does dramatically affects the community. If a hospital is burning fossil fuels, they're affecting the local air quality. So if you can think about your hospital shifting to renewable energy, it would have a direct positive effect on asthma, on cardiovascular diseases, on allergies. So I think making your voice heard if you are a climate champion and encouraging and supporting your hospital to make those changes and celebrating when your hospital does make those changes. Greg Dalton has been talking about building a climate-smart healthcare system with Jessica Wolf, Director of the Climate and Health Program at Healthcare Without Harm. Greg's other guests today were Jonathan Patz, Director of the Global Health Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Sue Reinard, Director of the documentary Mosquito, and West Nile virus survivor Chuck Yarling. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.